Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Alright, this week is a blast. This week we get to hear from the super mega producer, Bo Hill. So if everyone doesn't know the story, here it is. Bo starts out as a musician in his own right. He's with the band Shanghai, that used to be Spider, with former guest Amanda Blue. He's got his own band going called Airborne. Nothing quite takes off, and he gets an opportunity to start producing, and almost out of the gate... He produces rats out of the cellar, and that changes everything. To me, he is basically the architect of what we think of when we think of 80s hair metal, for better or worse with that too, with that uh, term. To me, it's him, uh, Bob Rock, and Ron Nevison as being the architects of pop rock metal music that was everywhere, the most commercially successful of that era. Bo is one of those guys. Now, in the wake of Rat's album, he starts building up and producing all of these other bands that we know and love from that era. There's Warrant, there's Winger, there's Twisted Sister, there's Europe, there's, I mean, Alice Cooper. There's also a bunch of great bands that don't hit it off that I grew to love while while, um, researching him for this episode. Air Race, Streets. Fast forward. These are all bands that I loved that I didn't know before. So anyway, we get to hear all the stories from behind the scenes. You guys know that, uh, like for instance, the things Jenny Lane would always say and feel about Cherry Pie. Well, Bo tells his side of the story. The, the things that we've heard Kip Winger say about Seventeen. Bo tells his story side of the story on that one too. We just get to learn how all that stuff was made and what it was like being with all of those bands and what it was like being the guy, the figurehead for that kind of music at that time. And we get to find out what he's doing today, which uh, he's still in it, as most producers are. They're just kind of more in the back. Um, not it's, it's a different business for them now, as we know. Anyway. I am so proud of this episode and proud that we got to hear from Bo Hill. I am so excited for you guys to hear this. He called me from his home in Austin, Texas. So here's the deal. In getting ready to talk to you, Bo, I've broken your career down into four sections. I've got your early stuff that you did when you were being a musician yourself. I've got the little guys that you've worked with. I've got the big guys that you've worked with. And then I've got a list of oddities. And the reason I start, I had to kind of control it that way or organize it that way is because, of course, everyone knows the Sunset Strip stuff that we're going to get into in a bit. What I discovered when I was getting ready to talk to you is how much I enjoyed the littler ones that you were doing before fame came along. And I want to ask you specifically about some of these. For instance, I'd never heard of Air Race before, and I pull up the Shaft of Light album, and it's now one of my favorite things ever. And so tell me about some of these earlier projects, that one specifically, I'm going to ask you about a couple others, that are the things that you're going, that you're doing to kind of build your bona fides as a producer, because they're wonderful. Well, thank you very much for saying that. And, and, and I'm going to have to start the conversation out with a, uh, with a correction. Oh, please. Because the, the pecking order went like this. Rat was was my actually it was my second record that I had ever produced oh. officially that got released. Okay. And because of Rat's success, 
all those others happened as a result of rat, oh. not the other way around. Oh, I see. Okay, well, that wipes out like half a dozen questions for you because, <laughs> because I'm imagining. I'm imagining once I, I went on a timeline that I saw on AllMusic.com or something, and I'm imagining once Rat comes around, that's one of these other things that's just like Air Race, that's just like Fast Forward, that's just like Streets. Uh, it's just one more thing that you're trying to do, hoping that it hits. But no, what was the first thing then? If it wasn't Rat. The first thing was, uh, San- well, when I became a producer or when I was still pretending when to be an When you were a producer. Artist. Yeah, when you became a producer, what was the first thing you did? Okay, that would be Sandy Stewart. Okay, I wonder. And the name that. of the album was Cat Dancer. Yep. And it came out on Modern Records. Mm-hmm. And the only reason why we got signed was Stevie Nicks yeah. absolutely fell in love with Sandy. And uh-huh. Stevie went to Doug Morris, the president of Atlantic, and said, you're going to sign this girl or I'm out of here, or something to that effect. Because <laughs> she sings on I Pretend. I wondered how that even got to be, but now I understand. It's Stevie going to bat for Sandy saying she's the real deal. Right. Okay. Okay. Whatever happened to Sandy? I don't even know. I mean, I listened to that album, but did it work out really? Not really. And and I don't think I'm talking out of school about this, but I mean, Sandy was all set. You know, she, she could have gone out and been one of the, one of the girls in Stevie's solo career. Mm-hmm. But Sandy had tremendous, terrible stage fright. Oh, really? Yep. And, uh, you know, she's a great writer, mm-hmm. great singer, great, you know, musician. But the whole, you know, touring thing and getting out there and doing that just did not float her boat. So oh. that kind of slammed the brakes on that project pretty quickly. Interesting. Okay. What a shame. It could have been there. Okay, then I still want to postpone Rat for a minute and talk about some of these other ones. Going back to what I was asking earlier, tell me about Air Race. So now I get it. Rat's become a thing, and people are coming to you saying, we want you to sprinkle the rat magic on our album, right? Exactly. Yes, because, you know, no no false modesty here. Nobody knew me from a hole in the ground. Mm -hmm. Even, Mm -hmm. Even after Rat, I mean, Rat just was especially for like air race and streets and stuff like that. Rat was, was simply a, uh, a justifier 
for why anybody would e- even mm. bring my name up at all. Got it. So it was like, hey, maybe you should think about getting Bo to do your record. Who the hell's Bo? <laughs> he's he's the guy that did that rat record. Oh, I've heard of rat, but I've never heard shit about Bo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. What was it like working with Air Race? Did they did Jason Bottom have I don't know. He's such a great drummer and I feel like he deserved more. It never quite worked out all the way or something. Well, Air Race was Jason's first record. Okay. And part of the uh, the intrigue if you will uh, around that record was obviously Jason Bottom. Sure. And and there and Zeppelin's road manager and for the life of me, I cannot remember his name, bad on me, mm. lovely man, was the manager of Air Race. Mm. And so, you know, there was that further, that yeah. further Led Zeppelin connection. Right. And it, it was a tremendously fun record to make. Mm-hmm. And actually, after the record was done, we all went down to my sister's place in the Bahamas and... Mm screwed around for a few days and did some diving and stuff like nice. that. It was a re- it was a very fun record. Oh, that's great. Promise to Call has been one of my favorite discoveries since deep diving into your career again. I think that is such a great call, such a great song. I love that song. I'll play it on repeat, you know? Okay, well, good. But that's that was really how, how that that okay. came about. And and the other guys in, in Air Race were, you know, just regular, normal, you know, mm-hmm. East End kids. And I remember that Laurie Mansworth, who was like the main writer, guitar player, his family owned a pub called Fonts Arms. Hmm. I don't even I don't even know where that memory came from. Wow. Fonts Arms. I wonder if that's still Fonts Arms. Okay. East 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 London. Oh yeah. It it, it was a it was a really fun record because, you know, Good. as as happened to me several times, you put a Texan in with like a bunch of East End London kids, and you can only imagine the uh, right. the, the humor and the piss takes that were yes. happening like on a regular basis. Yes. Now, I 
I want to talk about fast forward and streets as well. Here's a couple of almost reclamation projects. You've got uh, in Fast Forward's case, it's Ian Lloyd breaking off of stories, wanting to probably do his own thing, start a new project. I really like that album, too. I especially love She Broke Your Heart. Streets is something similar with Steve Walsh, but how did Ian Ian find you for Fast Forward? Uh, that, that was Bruce Fairbairn uh, and sure. Bob Rock, mm-hmm. because they had done the uh, Shanghai record. Yeah, that's right. That I was in for Chrysalis, mm-hmm. and so I was in New York, and and Bob and uh, and Bruce were in Vancouver, and so he called me and said, "Hey, you wanna you wanna come out and." and do a little work and and uh and we're interested in that song uh, living in fiction am i talking in my sleep repeating incantations could it be a true life story Sure. Yeah. And uh, so that's okay. kind of where that came from. I um, uh, Oh, please go. Well, no, I was, I was going to an- answer you about Streets. Yeah. Streets was was similar. It was, uh, it was the second Streets album, I believe, on Atlantic. And very, a very funny, but a very blessed situation happened. Mike Slamer, the genius guitar player of that project, or period, because I used Mike on lots of records, he was actually slated to be the producer oh. of Streets 2. 
And, you know, as you can imagine, some politics probably got involved. And mm-hmm. and uh, so initially he was kind of nonplussed at hearing the name Bo Hill next to producer. <laughs> but to his in- incredible uh, credit, mm-hmm. he he not only em- embraced the relationship, but he and I became extremely good friends. Oh, good. And, uh, and I wound up, I mean, I gave Mike as much work as I humanly possibly could. And including a, a, several very, very, very controversial ones, not the least of which is Warrant. Mm, mm-hmm. But that's kind of how that record happened. And then towards the end, Steve got very sick. And I, re- I remember that, I mean, the release date was slated and I wasn't finished because I wasn't finished with him. You know, I, I had yeah. some more stuff that I wanted him to do. And then he just, he, he was just unavailable. I guess he was just, he was sick and then got depressed cause he couldn't finish the record and just yeah. had some other issues going on. And so I was there with like a 90% finished record, but there were definitely holes in it that I wanted to fill that I wanted to try yeah. again or get another mm-hmm. vocal or whatever. So I had to do, you know, I really had to like, like pull it right out of thin air, mm-hmm. you know, to figure out, okay, mm-hmm. we don't have this, so let's put a guitar solo there. Okay, we don't have that, so let's, uh, I'll edit that piece off. Okay, we don't have this. Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit, you know, there, there was some open heart surgery that had to be mm-hmm. done on that particular album. Interesting. But but I I enjoyed working with Steve and and Mike was the true platinum record that came out of that. Yeah. Okay. Do you feel like either of those albums? I mean, they're they're new projects from legacy artists who whose heyday was kind of in the seventies. Do you think either of those had a chance to take off? I'm sure everything is in the wake of Rat and being compared to Rat. What was your take on how they were received? Okay, so I think the uh, the honest undercurrent of of my answer to you would would have to be that I didn't know my ass from first base <laughs> about how the actual business worked. Yeah, and 
you know, I mean, I had I had one project that got it was a great, great project. And it got barbecued because the band's manager got in a pissing match with the president of a record company. And so he said, oh, really? And he pulled the plug on the on the album. And so I didn't I didn't have a good, realistic handle on what to expect or how things worked. I mean, you know, I did I did rat and all of a sudden, you know. Mm-hmm. Everybody thinks I'm smart. I'm the smartest guy in the room. And I kind of went, oh, okay, well, I guess that's how it's supposed to be. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and so, because that's that's what I learned. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, suffice to say, it there, there were a lot of details to making a successful project. I bet. Um, t- to me, the, the legacy issue, I thought, well very naively so that okay well i know who steve walsh is so a lot mm-hmm. of other people got to know who steve walsh is and i mean my god you yeah. know he's the lead singer of kansas everybody's going to want to listen to him mm-hmm. yeah you'd think it would work and that so, way and it doesn't yeah well yeah i mean and and it took me a little while and it was quite sad and quite frustrating and it was one of those things where i was like going well so I guess I'm just a one-hit wonder then. I guess mm. that's it. But, you know, after I drilled down a little a little deeper and I started, you know, seeing where the bodies were really buried and what you had to do to make sure that you weren't joining them <laughs> in mm-hmm. the graveyard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and also, it helped me in selecting projects. Okay. Because, to me, you had to have great management. You had to have a great relationship with the promotion department at the label, and you had to have some reasonable connection with MTV at that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as those elements fused together, I started noticing, oh, we're having a little more success. I wonder mm-hmm. why. Mm-hmm. And then it became really apparent you know, that you had to have – you know, your marketing, your sales, your management, right. MTV, uh, the band had to, had to be touring like mad. Mm-hmm. And if any one of those elements was missing or lacking or fell out of sync with all the other elements, then you had real trouble on your hands. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned that one-hit wonderness that you were worried about for your own career. You obviously had... Uh-huh. I mean, you're the architect, basically, of kind of, I think of as the Sunset Strip sound. When did you feel like you were going to be okay? Was it Warrant Winger? When did you think, I'd, I think I've surpassed the one-hit wonderness of my career? Well, Warrant came next. Okay. And so I think it was when I was doing Warrant number one, and I was working on Invasion. That's rat number two. Mm-hmm. That's when I went, okay. I, th- yeah. I think, I think this, this might work. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, um, you know, privately, I always, I, I was very suspicious about how the record business in the, in the eighties and nineties worked. Mm-hmm. And so I, I never really, well, you know, like a lot of guys, when they when they have their first success, the first thing they want to do is they want to go out and buy a new car and mm-hmm. fly their girlfriend to Paris for lunch and do all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Mm-hmm. And and I just I never felt 
comfortable with thinking that that this was that this gravy train was going to go on mm-hmm. forever. Mm-hmm. And so, when you say when did I get comfortable, I it's kind of relative, I guess. Really? <laughs> because, okay. Yeah, because I I was always kind of looking out of the corner of my eye, going, okay, you know, when mm-hmm. when do the wheels fall off the bus? What's going to happen? Yeah. And as it turns out. Nirvana happened and the yeah. wheels fell off the bus in about five seconds. That's exactly right. When, I mean, I don't even know, do you think of yourself or did you then as somebody who was keenly aware or exceptionally talented at being the guy for hard rock and heavy metal at that point? I mean, I don't, Shanghai is a great kind of AOR band. Airborne is a great AOR band. I'm going to ask you about both of those in a minute. I don't see, I don't know, did you see yourself as the guy totally qualified to lift this music off the Sunset Strip and onto the airwaves? No, I never, th- I never thought of it like that. <laughs> I, honestly, I, okay. I never did. And, and again, just because I, I, was, I was always very suspect mm-hmm. of, everything, of everything that was going on. I mean, watching the amount of money that people were making overnight was very incongruous to me. I I, I really, I had trouble kind of uh, making two plus two equal four, but you know, Hey, it was the, the American dream and, and you can do that kind of stuff in sports and you can do it in movies and guess what? You can do it in the record business or at Mm -hmm. least you could back then. Yeah. Did you notice any kind of formula to it? Like for instance, if you're working on, Maybe not an, like the, by the third or fourth rat album that you're working on. Do you know going in, okay, I approach a rap rocker. It needs this and a rap ballad needs this. Not that they have too many ballads, but did you get to where you understood what the formula required for these bands? And if you did, what would that formula have been? Well, I would have to be honest and say that, that after making so many of those records, you know, there was a certain formulaic sure. aspect to it. But as I continued to to hone my own career and to try to get better at my job, there were certain things that I noticed worked more consistently than others. Hmm. Not trying to be overly vague here, but, you know, um, I'm trying to think. That's okay. Okay. The best... One of the best debut records that I ever heard, and I studied this, I actually charted it out, Mm. was the first Third Eye Blind record. I didn't know anything about the band, and I didn't didn't really care for them, but I I kept seeing them in Billboard. Uh And I was going, I've never even heard of these guys. And when I did my research, they had five runaway singles on their debut album. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was just like, whoa, okay, they're doing something right. Uh-huh. And so I, I started studying them, believe it or not. Really? <laughs> and, and Yes. I, I very definitely, I was like third eye blind mania. Huh. And, and to this day, I've never met any of them, never spoken to them. I don't know anything about them or what uh-huh. happened to them. But that first record was such a milestone to me. And, uh, and I, and I learned, uh, a very valuable lesson from them. 
and I noticed that in every every one of these singles, they they hit the chorus within fifteen seconds. Really, fifteen seconds. No way. Or, or they began the song with it, like how about when I graduate? Boom! Right there, they sold that record in five seconds. Interesting. It, it was just phenomenal as I was listening to this and I was going, oh my God. Yeah. And the other thing was a lot of bands steal from themselves. You know, they kind of mm-hmm. rewrite the same song over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. But these guys were doing like vastly different things. But that was, that was like my big aha moment. Yeah. When I went, that's what they're doing. Is wow. they're, they're, and then think about like, you know, Bon Jovi did it a lot too. Mm-hmm. But that was one takeaway that I went, okay, this, everybody's attention span is so short and so small that you've got to hit them in the face with a cream pie right off the bat or they're changing the channel and you're done. Yeah. Fascinating. And so it helped me to, to get a little more immediate with songs that we were going to radio with as opposed mm-hmm. to, you know, trying to get overly creative and, and overly you know, yesed out and things like that. Yeah. But it helped, it helped me focus on, okay, this is what drives radio. Uh-huh. And then because I'm doing radio edits for people and things like that, and I, and I never really quite put it all together. But then when the third eye blind thing happened, all the dominoes fell for me. I went, I got it. I understand why and huh. how and who this is, this is happening for. And that was really invaluable to me. I can tell. So I'm curious because you're for better or worse, so much of your peak era is considered to be that eighties era who or what did you work on after you learned this about third eye blind? What's an example that we could play right here that people will go, I see what you mean. How did it influence you? Cherry pie. Wait, third eye blind came before cherry pie. No, I think so. Third eye blind. Did they come out at the same time? No, Third Eye Cherry Pie was like eighty nine, and Third Eye Blind would have been about ninety four. There was a difference there. Okay, then let me refine what I said to you. Okay, I guess I instinctively did stuff like that, but I didn't understand why. Okay, that makes more sense. That makes sense. Yes. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Now, okay, so tell me the. I think a lot of people have heard the Cherry Pie story. I want to hear it directly from you. My understanding is Janie Lane. Decide we're going to name this album Uncle Tom's Cabin. We're going a little more serious. Somebody, I don't know if it's you or the label or someone else, says we don't hear a hit. We need that thing, that hook. And I believe he wrote the song in five minutes on a pizza box, maybe even sitting on the toilet. Swinging on the lawn, swinging where we walk 
What about, does any of this ring true to you? Yes. I went to the band and I said, I don't think we have a single. I don't think we have a strong lead single. And then Janie took it from there. I got a phone call that night and he he had uh, done an acoustic guitar rendering on his little cassette player and he played it for me over the phone. And I said, that's it. We're there. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now he lived to regret that moment. Um, how do you feel about that? Well, I sp- it was very funny. I spoke to Janie two days before he passed. Oh, wow. We had a fabulous conversation. He sounded as lucid as a, as a judge to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and he was bemoaning that. You know, he went, yeah, I'm always going to be known as the cherry pie guy. And I said, are you out of your mind? <laughs> I mean, that is a rock anthem. That is. Like, you know, I mean, pick your poison. We will rock mm-hmm. you, whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you have made so many people happy you know, and it's a great, fun mm-hmm. party song. And I mean, it's just, you can't listen to that song with a frown on your face. Not even, no, I agree. And I, and I just, I was like, Jamie, man, you, you got to do a quick realignment on this because you've pulled off something that like, you know, probably 10 people in the world mm-hmm. have ever pulled off mm-hmm. to get a recognizable song like that, you know, that you can get an entire football stadium of people singing that's right she's my cherry pie yeah in five seconds yeah and i hope i hope that i was somewhat influential with him Uh, you know he sounded like yeah well okay maybe it's not that bad and i was just like my god dude (laughs) that's that's the silliest thing i've ever it's immortality yeah yeah he's immortal but but yes that was one of those one of those weird Moments that he took it, ran with it, yeah, and gave it back to me. And I think we were in the studio to finish that song within 48 hours or something. I mean, it, it went really fast. And it's the last one recorded on that album, right? Everything else was done. Yep. Yeah. 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 Let me ask you about Warrant because um, they are a band that I didn't, I was not, I, I got to be honest, Bo, I was not into the stuff that you were making then. I love it now. Um, I came around to it later. I was more into like Depeche Mode and The Cure, still am, but uh, that okay. was more my jam back then. And so I, when I go back and I listen to Dirty, Rotten, Filthy, Stinking Rich or whatever it is, I, um, I don't hear, I hear a couple of good songs. I don't hear the guy that would become the great songwriter that he became, in my opinion, by Cherry Pie. And he has this, now, thankfully, in retrospect, he has a bit of a of a reputation as somebody who was a really solid songwriter and didn't get the due that he deserved. I'm wondering if you agree or feel differently because when I, like I said, when I listen to warrant one, I don't necessarily hear the talent that would become displayed by warrant two. Um, I would have to agree with you. Oh, interesting. Okay. And I, and you probably know this better than I, but I don't even remember, I guess the first single was dirty, rotten, filthy, sink and rich, right? I think it was. The only ones I remember is Down Boys.
When I went to hear them, they were playing at the, oh man, it was a place called the Country Club in the Valley in, in L.A. And when I walked into that place, there were, I mean, it was packed. There were 2,000 kids in their singing heaven. Mm. And I was, I was just like, okay, I'm so, <laughs> you know. Yeah. You don't have yeah. to drop a piano on me. This They're hearing something that they liked. Yeah. And Janie was such a tremendous showman. I mean, I, I often teased him and, and said, man, if you weren't a rock star, you should have been a Baptist preacher. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and he, th- those guys put on such a compelling show. Yeah. And, and I think, I think that's what, I think that's what powered them on was pe- yeah. people really enjoyed being entertained by Janie. <laughs> And the songwriting part of it, you know, I never really thought about it the way you just mentioned it, but, you know, where did Uncle Tom's Cabin come from? I mean, where did uh, all of those? Just follow the record, let's get the story straight And you and Uncle Tom are fishing, it was getting pretty late Out on the side was them above the ocean Well, where they say you got no bottom So they take you down a hill Yeah. So Janie, I guess, had a huge growth spurt right before we went in to do Cherry Pie because, I mean, sometimes she cries. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, there are so so many songs on, on that record that are agree. very, very meaningful to me. And and not so much so on the first one. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel that same way, too. I, I just am surprised that when I listen to the first... I don't necessarily hear the potential that would become unlocked by the second. And yet you worked on both. And I wondered, am I alone in feeling that way? Or it sounds like you maybe you feel that way too. That second album really encapsulated what made Warren special. Yeah. And as I said, I never really thought about it hmm. the way that, that you just mentioned it. I guess because the second record that I did for Rat was my favorite. The uh, Warrant was my favorite, yeah. and For Winger was my favorite. Yeah, yeah. And that I'm sure that there were a number of contributing aspects to it. You know, one, we all knew each other. Yeah. Two, these guys were, you know, it wasn't an accident that they went platinum on their first record, so there was definitely some talent there. Yeah. And it, it just it just blossomed, I guess, a little more on the second record. Yeah. Let's talk about Winger because I'm of the opinion that they are a criminally underrated band. I've had Kip on here and um, I love him. And he's obviously, he has worked his butt off 
to overcome the impression of him being the Playgirl 17 heartthrob guy and that he's actually a very serious musician. And he gets some, a lot of credit for that, probably not as much as he deserves. And that's you mentioned that second album, uh, second winger album. I agree. That's, it's such a... It's as good as the first, but it, it expands on how great each one of those guys are as musicians. Tell me the story yeah. of Seventeen. That, like Cherry Pie, I think in some ways is this boulder that Kip has to carry around with him, even though it's a fantastic pop song. You bring it up in a, in a very interesting and unusual way. Mm. Because at the time, every single guy in those bands thought that the first record was the greatest record ever. Mm. And Kip was as thrilled as I was that 17 took off. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess if you look back now with the distance of time, you know, okay, maybe writing a song about seven, about <laughs> girl 17 isn't the most highbrow thing you'd ever mm-hmm. consider doing, but it was a place to start. Sure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, and to Kip's credit, he, he continued his uh, musical education you know, in using his celebrity, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, to, to further his, his education in a variety of, of uh, musical endeavors. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know. I guess mm. I don't look back at any of those records with any kind of regret. I, mm. I look back and I go, okay, that, that was starting point A. Mm-hmm. Now, did we go backwards from there or were we able to move forward? <laughs> right, right. And on those records, I would have to say, yes, we definitely had a starting point mm-hmm. and uh, we moved forward. And all those guys, as well as myself, you know, we came away with an absolute aircraft carrier full mm-hmm. of new information, new knowledge, new places to go. And, you know, I, and we went there. So yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I don't have any, any bad feelings about where Good. we started. Cause for Christ's sake, you got to start somewhere. That's right. That's right. When you, now, I, as I mentioned, I think a lot of the guys in winger, each individual member kind of like rush is seen as like, just a formidable talent on their instrument individually, but they don't get that much credit as a band. Would you concur with that when you saw them and you're recording them? Like for instance, by 
by that second album, it expand the sound expands a little bit. Are you thinking to yourself, these guys are such good musicians. I need to give them opportunities to show that. Or are you trying to make the best pop rock album you can make? Uh, great question. Well, first of all, Winger wasn't Winger. Mm. <laughs> Winger was Kip and Reb in my apartment in Hoboken, New Jersey. Wow. And there was no band. Yeah. And our very good friend, Rick Krim, who was one of the triumvirate at uh, MTV at the time, one of the programming geniuses, mm-hmm. <clears throat> we found out that he was really, really a fan of the Dixie Dregs, which is where Rod came from. Uh-huh. And so we, re- we reached out to Rod to see if he'd be interested in doing the, doing the record. Mm-hmm. And then you know, I, I had no idea that he, he would be involved. He said, he said, okay. And then during the record, he came and he said, listen, I want to join the band. And I went, whoa, 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 Rod, wait a minute. <laughs> this is a baby band, and they're going to go through the baby band experiences and lack of income and lack of everything else that's going to go hand in hand with this. Are you really sure you want to do that? And he said, absolutely, I want to do it, and I'll come in, and I'll take the hard lumps like everybody else. And to his extreme credit, he did so. Amazing. And the most amazing thing about Winger, I don't know if if you knew this, but they never played a bar. Really? Their first performance, yes, their first performance was in front of 15,000 people opening for the Scorpions. Whoa. Whoa. That's interesting because I saw them about three or four years ago in a bar. So unfortunately, it's gone the other direction, but good for them. Mm-hmm. Those guys are great. It's tr- it, It's truly an amazing story. Winger broke because of the hard work of three people. Nick Karras, who was their agent and also the agent of the Scorpions. And Nick put his ass on the line with the Scorps people and said, this band is going to blow you away. Mm-hmm. And so he got them on the Scorps tour, which blew everything up. Because mm-hmm. then we went back to Rick Krim. We, got, we, 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 we had the tour. And, uh, and then Rick started banging the uh, 17 video. Mm-hmm. And then... And it was very funny because the initial allocation from Atlantic, and this is this is me with my mentor Doug Doug Morris, mm-hmm. and the initial allocation for the Winger release was only seventeen thousand pieces nationally, which really made me very very angry because, and I went back to Doug and I said, "This is not a release. This is an apology. Mm-hmm. What is up with this?" Mm-hmm. And I was very upset. And obviously we got through that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the thing started flying off the shelf. And then Doug was playing catch up baseball to a certain extent to make yeah. sure that he could keep up with the sales. Cause every place these guys opened for the Scorpions, they'd sell out Amazing. like the next day. You couldn't go to tower records and get a winger record to save your soul. Yeah. Fascinating. But Good yes, for them. Every one of those guys, I'm sorry, I digressed. No, this is <laughs> gold. Every one of those guys are absolute giants in their, yeah. 
in their particular instrument. Yeah, agreed. I love them. And, um, well, I love, I mean, everybody we've talked about, I just, I think it's, and I wish that second album in the heart of the young, I wish it got more of its due. It's just as good, if not better than the first. And, um, I think people skip over it and they shouldn't. the headwinds, one of which you alluded to was the uh, Playgirl article, and then let us not forget the helping hand that we got from the Metallica boys by Beavis true. and Butthead. Oh, true. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, so we had we definitely had some headwinds on on that record that were not necessarily of our own making, but nonetheless, we still had to deal with it. And, yeah. But I think that that really you know, short-circuited the potential of that second record. I agree. I agree. Um, now, if it's okay, the winger, uh, can we talk about Fiona for a minute? Sure. Okay. Because, I mean, obviously when you're sexing me, uh, the F- Fiona, and I had Fiona on here too a few years ago. I was telling her that I, the sexual power of the two of them singing that song is almost overwhelming. Two of the most uh-huh. attractive people of their species that have ever lived singing this sexy song is like, I mean, I'm like 15 years old or something and it's blowing me away. It's still almost too much to grasp. You, I believe, <laughs> <laughs> you, were, uh, you were married to Fiona there for a while, I think, and did a, some of her earlier albums 
tell me, tell me what you can or what you're comfortable with anyway, hope it's okay, about working with Fiona and trying to kind of break her as an artist. It was fine. Uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, she she worked. I mean, she worked as hard as she possibly could. You know, and I pressed her as hard as I could. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure why that why that didn't take off. But it, it, that was just one of those mystery projects because she was doing she'd done an episode of Miami Vice mm-hmm. and she'd opened for um, Brian Adams. Oh, and okay. and it looked and she did that. She did that movie with Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. Hearts of Fire. Hard to fire, yeah. Worst movie on the planet Earth. I've never seen it. <laughs> oh, I know it has don't that even. reputation, but <laughs> oh, don't don't even don't even. Oh, I mean, it makes Spicoli look like a genius, you know. <laughs> I believe it. But no, she she was she was very hardworking, and I just don't know why it 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 never mm-hmm. connected for her. But it just yeah. didn't, and it certainly wasn't for a lack of trying on a lot of people's parts. I believe it. I don't know, and I hope this is okay to ask, when did you two become a couple? Was it after you started producing her albums or before? Uh, after <clears throat> I produced uh, Beyond the Pale. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so no, it was a, it was a absolutely 100% professional mm-hmm. relationship until, until we finished that record. Okay. I noticed that she had, well, the first song I remember hearing from her was Talk to Me which had come from Shanghai. Was that, uh, I'm assuming when you're working on Fiona's project, are you thinking, I've got a song that I think might work for you? No, it happened It happened totally organically. Jason Flom at Atlantic, who was Fiona's A&R guy, I had been struggling trying to get anybody's attention at any label anywhere hmm. to try to move my career down the line. And so I wound up somehow sending it, sending a copy of, of talk to me to Jason Plum. Mm. And it didn't get me signed or anything like that, but Jason had it sitting around and he was in the process of signing Fiona. And he said, what do you think of this song? And so he, he played Fiona, my demo of talk to me. And then they recorded it, released it and everything. And I had never 
spoken to Fiona or met her or done anything. I just knew, yeah, I just knew that I had a song that was being covered and I was, you know, fingers crossed, thanking my lucky stars. I went, okay, maybe if this song takes off, then maybe I'll have a chance. (laughs) Wow. And yeah. So that happened completely organically. I had no idea. That's crazy. I just assumed you were like, oh, I've got the perfect song for this. Young Chanteuse, no. it's a song from my old band. No, and, and that's how I wound up producing her, her record. Okay. Doug said, why don't you get, why don't you just have Bo do your next record? You know, he wrote your yeah. single. Yeah. And I was like, oh. you know, so it it wasn't really that much of a stretch. And okay. she, she liked the song. And, you know, and at that point I had at least one rat record under my belt. And so I wasn't a completely unknown quantity right uh, so you know okay and we we met and got along and there you yeah. have it and it worked out okay cool um all right let's talk i i you could talk for hours i'm sure just about rat i do want to ask one question in particular there okay. could be dozens but one in particular you're working on the fourth album way cool junior is kind of the mild hit off that album That song, as fun as it is, is different than anything else they've done because there's horns in there. It's kind of jaunty and funky in a way. Whose decision is it to put horns on that album because or on that song? Because it, that that move alone is so different than anything any of the other hair metal bands, so to speak, were doing at that time. <clears throat> uh, I have to take credit for that one myself. Good one. Good one. Yeah, there you go. <clears throat> well, and it's just, I, I just heard it, you know, because yeah. that song just started out with Warren playing that riff. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I love that. Let's, let's do something with it. Yeah. And, uh, and then it, it became Way Cool Jr. And I think I wrote the lyrics for that one for him. Really? Yeah. That's great. Were they amenable just, to that? You know, like Horn, sure. Why not? Well, Here's what happened with the rat guys. Initially, everything they hated, every idea I came up with, they were just like, there is no way we're doing that. That's the worst idea I've ever heard in my entire life. Mm-hmm. By the time the fourth record came around, they had already fired me three more times. 
<laughs> and each time they fired me, Doug at Atlantic called up Marshall Burrell, their manager, and said, are you out of your fucking mind? <laughs> you do whatever you have to do to get Bo to come back and do the record. Mm-hmm. So every time that this would happen, I said, okay, I'll come back and do it, but I want free reign with fill in the blank, whatever it was. Okay. And since they kept getting threatened with getting dumped off the label and they didn't want to do that, they would re- reluctantly, in, in some cases, uh, agree to it. Hmm. So by the time the fourth record came along, you know, I pretty much was able to do whatever I wanted. Okay. And I don't remember if, you know, once, once the horn section went in, I don't, I want to say, I don't think that that there was any resistance. I want to say that I think the guys actually kind of liked it. Yeah. Good. But, but initially I think I just went ahead and did it. Yeah. I I don't remember that we had a big discussion about anything. Uh, I just did it. Yeah. Okay. How did your, I mean, we've established that you go from being a name, a no name to a name without of the seller's success, but what, I mean, how are you feeling during this time? Was it a surprise to you that round and round, which, I mean, I think of round and round and I think of like Madeleine by uh, winger as two of the greatest pop songs ever written. They happen to be performed by so-called hair metal bands, but those are, those are rock solid pop songs that anyone could have done and done well when that hits. And that becomes a huge thing on the radio. Are you surprised by this? Are you, um, yeah. really? Oh, totally. Okay. I mean, I, and I, and I can tell you one story that you may not have heard, mm. but it was the selection of round and round. Now I didn't want round and round to be the first single. <laughs> and, and again, this is me not knowing anything about anything other than right. I just had an opinion. Right backed up with nothing of any substance uh-huh. just beyond my own opinion. Yeah. Come to find out that Doug had taken the record and taken it home. And his son, mm-hmm. Walter, who was, I think, eight or nine at the time, was wandering around the house going, run, 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 run. <laughs> and it, because obviously he heard Doug playing it in his office. You know, he's listening to it, trying to get his marketing plan going and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I wanted Back for More to be the first single. Mm -hmm. I just loved that song, and, and and that's that's how Doug picked it because he heard his sons walking around the house singing that's it. Great. <laughs> that's great. I mean, 
and a scene was born. You know, I mean, the Sunset Strip existed before that, but it wasn't mainstream until that moment. I don't think anyway. Well, we certainly we certainly contributed to it. That's for sure. Yeah. I'll I'll, yeah. I'll I'll give it that. And thank you, Walter, for yeah making the call, <laughs> Walter. All praise to Walter. Um, okay, I've got a couple more of these I want to ask you about, but I, let's sure. take a break from this for one second. I mean, did you ever think I don't want to just do heavy metal? I want to do something else. Or were you happy where you were in your lane? Well, um, I'll answer your question a little differently. Okay. Because I'm asked this all the time. Who are the artists that you really, really wanted to produce? Mm -hmm. And I get the same answer every time. Sting and Peter Gabriel. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so to answer your question more directly, I was thrilled with the lane that I was in, but I also understood, and I tried to break out a couple of times, you know, like when I did Shaka Khan with a reason. I was going to ask you about that. Yep. And, you know, tried to do, you know, broaden my, my horizon, or at least the perception of me, Uh Uh but it's very, very difficult, if not impossible once you once you have you know knocked the ball out of the park success mm-hmm. that's you're that guy yeah yeah so i became that guy yeah and you know to be completely honest i was i was thrilled to death to be a guy at all because <laughs> <laughs> i never i never thought that that degree of success w- would just elude me throughout my entire life i never thought yeah. that it would happen yeah. So on the, on the one hand, you know, I was ambitious and wanted to do other things and wanted to, you know, not be the hair, the hair band guy, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but then I'd have to go, Jesus Christ, you know, mm-hmm. at least you're a guy in yeah. the, in the mix. So major player. Yeah. yeah. As far as I'm concerned, the three architects, there are three main architects of what was rock music in the eighties. And it was you, Bob Rock and Ron Nevison, I think are the three guys who sort of created that sound. And I'm happy to report that now that you, I've talked to you, all three of you have been on the show now and I've gotten a chance to tell you that I love you. So anyway, yeah, in my, in my mind, it's you three, you're the Kings of that era of what, of creating what passed for rock, heavy metal, AOR rock, whatever. You guys are the guys who made it. Well, thank you very much. That's, that's, uh, rarefied air that you've stuck me in absolutely it's true but you deserve it i did briefly tell me about shaka khan because that is absolutely an outlier on your resume that's a great album by the way i have it
working with Arif Martin, I mean, he's a legend, but he's not a legend in the circles you're running in. So what was it like bringing you into a, a project like that? Okay, well, back, back in those days, uh, Arif lived two blocks from the studio, and I lived literally around the corner from Atlantic. No way. Swear to God. I mean, it took me 15 seconds to get to work. And Arif was in Studio A, like, by the year, and I was booking Studio B by the year. And so, and we obviously saw each other every day, you know, to Mm -hmm. get coffee or what have you. And Arif didn't know me from, Mm -hmm. from anybody because he was, he was an employee of Atlantic, I believe. Anyway, he'd been talking to, to Doug and to, uh, Dave glue and, and people like that. And, uh, they said, well, you ought to go down the hall and stick your head in and say hi. Mm -hmm. And so he did. And, uh, he was very gracious and very nice. Mm -hmm. And he would come in and he'd tap on the door and he'd say, can I, can I stay for a minute to hear what you're working on? And I said, absolutely. Are you kidding? And, um, then his schedule, something happened in his schedule and he, he needed like a, a substitute. And so he said, this is the song that I want to do, but I don't know what the arrangement or anything should do. So do whatever you want to, and then I'll finish up. And so I said, okay, and went to work. And I want to say that Reb played guitar on that. Oh, really? I, th- I should look. I, I have a CD he- here somewhere. I should go look at the liner notes. Well, it was either it was either Reb or Mike Slamer, one of the two okay. of those guys. Okay. And uh, so I wrote the arrangement. I, I think I played the bass on it, the bass synth on it, and that was it. So it was it was it was basically you know he needed a he needed a. a backbencher to come in and help him out on one particular song. I think he was on a deadline or something like that. And mm-hmm. it was just like, I, I got to have some help on this one song. Mm-hmm. And I was like, absolutely. Are you kidding? That's great. So, that's how Good that for you. Good for you. Um, okay. I wanted to ask you about a couple more of these. I've been calling them reclamation projects. One okay. in particular was T- Twisted Sister. Uh, I actually really love the Love is for Suckers albums. That's one of my favorites of theirs. But it's not considered, you know, it's past their prime to a lot of people. They've just, you know, Stay Hungry was such a thing. And then what was the next one? Come Out and Play or something like that. And then then it's yours. And I love that. I love Hot Love. On that album, it's great stuff. But it didn't hit. Run, 
when you're working with them on that album, are you sensing with them any kind of desperation that like we had our moment and it's slipping away and we've got to recapture it. Please help us get back there to the top of the mountain. Yeah. Um, there, there was an undercurrent of a bit of a hail Mary. And again, that was one that Doug asked, he said, Bo, I, I want you to do this record for me. Mm. And, uh, and, and I hadn't ever been like a, a giant twisted fan, mm-hmm. but I absolutely loved D. Snyder to death. Yeah. And as as I got to know him, and, and I think I think it's a very good record. I do too. But I think their sale by date had sailed by, you know. Yeah. And and because D is such a high profile guy. Yeah. And and I just I just think that everybody just kind of got worn out on the whole twisted thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I thoroughly enjoyed making that record with him. Good. And, uh, and to me, he is one of the most underrated singers. You I know, agree. part of it is, is he's a, a character caricature of himself. Yes. And, and, um, and so maybe that's made it difficult for people to take him seriously. But I mean, this guy sings his ass off. No yes. doubt. Yeah, I agree. I like that album. And I'm so, I'm happy for him. What a, what a, what a redemptive arc to his story, you know, to now he's, you know, financially solvent and seen as a legend and perfectly his family is strong and his marriage, all these things. It's like, just, he's one of the good guys and he got what he deserved. It took 10 or 15 years, but it happened finally, you know, I'm so glad I love him. Yeah. Good. Good guy. Um, let me ask you about one of the others, and that's Europe, uh, the Prisoners of Paradise album. That's what it's called, right? It's really good. Yes. And that was another one that was two or three albums after Final Countdown, and they're they're not recapturing, but it's so strong. It's same thing. Are you sensing some desperation there too? Uh, not so much with Europe. And there's a very funny story that Ooh. that I can share with you on that. Please. I got a call from Herbie Herberts, who just recently passed away. Mm-hmm. Their United States manager. They had they had Swedish management as well. And he said, 
would you be interested in coming up to a rehearsal and uh, taking a look at, at uh, Europe? And I thought, well, I should do this because Europe is much bigger internationally than uh. any of the other bands that I'm working with. And which is true. I mean, you know, they're selling out hundred thousand seat soccer stadium in Surabaya mm. and things like in, you know, any place in South America and stuff like that. And so I was trying to think, you know, marketing myself, going, Okay, these are places that that I don't really sell a lot of records, but let's go. So I was very enthusiastic about it. Jumped on a plane, went up to San Francisco and and they played, and they were really, really nice, and I heard a couple of really great songs. And then Joey came over to me, and he, he said, listen, I, I, I want to thank you for coming up, but we're not using you on this record. <laughs> I mean, it was just like that. And, I, and I, was, I was a little bit taken aback, and I was like, oh, well, okay, but thank you very much for you know, letting me come up for a rehearsal. I really wish you guys all the best. And we shook hands and, and, and left. Oh, and he said, the label wants us to put this record out, but we're going to wait for Bob Rock. Mm. And I went, okay, you know, mm. I know Bob. Uh, and Bob engineered my last record when I was an artist. So this, he, he's a great choice. Mm -hmm. But still, it was a little, a little bit of a kick in the nuts, you know. <laughs> Yes, of <laughs> when course. He just came right up to me. I just met the guy, you know, 15 minutes earlier, and he said, yeah. "Thanks for coming up, but you don't have the job." Yeah. So, fast forward, I think it was like two weeks or something like that, and I got the call from Herbie again. He said, "Okay, it's yours if you want it." And I said, "Absolutely." And so, what wound up happening is Joey and I wound up becoming best of friends. Really, I mean, best best of friends. Yes. And yeah, and I went to the whole thing about prisoners in paradise was they owned a home in Turks and Caicos as a band. Wow. Now why did they do that? Well, this was back in the day if if you'll remember all of the Swedish tennis stars and yeah. rock set and everybody were leaving yeah. Sweden because of the 90% tax. Yes. And so they they left and went to Turks and Caicos because one of the guys, and I don't remember which one, had a marijuana arrest. Oh, mm. And so it was very difficult for them to be able to get to gain entry as a uh, uh, permanent resident mm -hmm. in a lot of countries where they probably would have rather gone, like someplace in Europe someplace closer to home. Mm -hmm. So they wound up in, in this place and this they referred to as prisoners of paradise. Mm, they felt like they it. were prisoners in, in paradise. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so we spent, we spent a great deal of time in Turks and Caicos after the record was done. I went over there and, and Joey and I went diving and hanging out and it's great fun. That's great. It's a, such a good record. It did it, it. Were they happy with it? And did they feel? I mean, it does. Like Love Is for Suckers, it's not putting these guys back at the top of the heap again. But it's quality work. Were they? Could they at least appreciate it on that front? Oh sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and uh, and there's another little weird side chain 
to their record mm. was <clears throat> I don't know if you re- if you will remember, but the Super Bowl that year I don't even remember who played, mm. but they were introducing a new technology called Q Sound. Mm. Are you familiar with any of that? I don't think so. No, tell me about it. Okay, so the the technology of Q Sound was supposed to. Uh, colloquially think of it as surround sound, but oh. only using two speakers. Mm. Mm. So, so what it actually did was it just, it reversed the phase without getting too in the weeds and, and was tricking your ear into thinking that it was coming. Certain pieces of the uh, song were coming from behind you. Oh, wow. Huh? And, and so we got a hold of the technology, and this was the first record, supposedly, that was released in Q Sound. No way. Yeah. Now the dirty little secret with Q Sound was because it was it was fucking with the phase mm-hmm. to trick your ear. Well, nobody bothered to think about. Well, what's going to happen in in regular stereo, or even that? What's going to happen in mono? Because mm-hmm. a lot of people still had mono in their cars, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and mono television uh, speakers mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So it wasn't a foregone conclusion that everything was in glorified yeah. stereo. Yeah. And so I finished the record, and then I was doing some some mono checking compatibility checking and all of a sudden the record disappeared i mean gone hmm. like i think the only thing that survived was like the kick drum and the snare drum and all the stuff that was on the fringes phase canceled themselves so oh. long story short i went i had to go to uh, sony and say i got to redo this because the uh, the record disappears if it's yeah. not properly within you know the q sound uh, definition. Whoa. Yeah. And so I got to, I mixed the record, the whole thing twice. (laughs) Well, thank goodness. But man, that would have, how scary, you know, everything you've worked on just poof like that. Yeah, it it really was. But the the band was, was game. I mean, it it was like, look, we're going to be the first ones. And if this thing catches, then Whoa, Nelly. We're it. But yeah. unfortunately, that that wasn't the case. Yeah. You seem like a tried and true Texan, you know? And here you're plopped down in the middle of hair metal mania. And there's drugs and there's women and there's discord and there's infighting. Say as much or as little as you want. I mean, were you able to sort of rise above all of that and just be professorial about working on albums, or are you in there in the weeds, uh, you know, partying too, like a rock star? Well, um, I would have to say partially. Okay. And, and I can give you the exact reason why. I'm a day person. Oh. And you can ask any band that I worked with. Universally, they hated working with me because I made everybody come to work at 10. And we'd, we'd work and have a little lunch break, and then we'd work until, you know, 6 o'clock, 7 mm-hmm. o'clock. Mm-hmm. And then I said, okay, I'm done. I'm going to go have dinner, have a couple of vodka tonics, and then off to bed. Right. And so I kind of forced myself not to 
not to indulge too much. Now, uh-huh. I certainly wasn't Pollyanna about it either. Right. So right. if if there was a, an occasion for us to go out and uh, burn some brain cells, I uh-huh. was right with them. Good. But when we were in the middle of a production, you know, I felt a fiduciary obligation to these guys. Sure. I mean, you know. If you're spending $2,000 a day in a studio and, you, and nobody shows up for work until 3 in the afternoon, mm-hmm. that's kind of messed up. Yeah, yeah. So that that kind of kept me, you know, on the straight and narrow as much as I wanted to be. Okay, okay. Um, who had a bigger cocaine budget, rat or warrant? <laughs> if that's too pointed a question, I'm sorry. Um well, I would I would have to say probably rat. Okay, okay, that sounds that's about right. That sounds in keeping with what you think of when you think rat. Okay. Yeah, but but that's that's not to be misconstrued that uh, you know that Janie was uh, uh, Mister Perfect. Either, no, so. no, we know we know he wasn't. Okay, a uh, couple more if that's okay. Alice sure. Cooper, Constrictor. It, it's one of the last albums he does before his big comeback with Trash. Iconic album cover, only a, maybe a song or two on it that's probably still considered uh, iconic now. He's back is a really good one. Um, what was it like working with Alice? Was he sober in those days? Was he clear-minded? Or were was were you still dealing with the Alice of old? Uh, no, he was completely 100% sober, 100% professional, a lot of fun, and tremendously cooperative. I mean... If I asked him to do anything, he was like, great, okay, let's go. Yeah, he seems that way. Yeah, I, I, I truly loved working with him. It was a real honor. And uh, it's just, his, you know, his record company, which was MCA on that particular one, mm-hmm. was not a, a first choice for me. Mm-hmm. But working with Alice was. Good. Did you guys play and a lot then of golf? As a result, no, I I, oh. I didn't I didn't start playing golf until last year. <laughs> really? <laughs> wow! Swear to God! Wow! I, I mean, okay. I I just I just t- took it up because we were canceling all of our trips because of COVID, and I was just like going, well, okay, so I mix and I play golf. Yeah, and that's what I do. That's it. Wow! <laughs> Sorry, I cut you off. What were you going to say about Alice? He was a 
truly lovely guy. And I have one funny Alice story. Please. Is we recorded it in New York. And on Halloween. So this, so this is it. You got the Texan and the, and the ultimate rock star. Right. And Alice says, you know, his, his thing is he loves splatter movies, you know, like mm-hmm. Halloween and, <laughs> and saw and stuff like right. that. All it, any, any movie where somebody's getting hacked to bits, Alice yeah. loves those. <laughs> and they were playing one of them was opening in in Manhattan and and so I went down with with Alice and he said let's go see it and I went okay and so we we went up to the ticket counter and I will never forget the look on the kid <laughs> that sold us our tickets He's looking up at Alice Cooper, you know, welcome to my nightmare, Alice Cooper. And he's selling him tickets to like see the Saw 4 or something uh-huh. like that. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was very fun. That and is then, great. And, and he did one other thing, which I really, really loved, was um, I was just screwing around in the studio one day and I said – Hey, Alice, would you do me a favor and call my sister and say hello in the Bahamas? And he went, sure. And so I called my sister and gave, gave, and gave Alice the phone, and he picked it, and my sister answered, and she said hello. And Alice said, is this Beth? Yeah. Oh, hi, Beth. This is Alice Cooper calling. And so they, they chat on the phone for 15 or 20 minutes. I mean, he was so game to do That's any great. of that kind of stuff. That's and great. he was so... Uh, generous with his time and um, uh, just a true pleasure. Good. That's just what, that is his persona now. And I'm so, and so everything you're saying just feeds into that. I'm so glad he's a treasure. You know, I've been able to see him in concert a couple of times. He's just a treasure. I love him. And he, he was another one of, one of the people that helped to establish winger. Oh, really? Yes. Cause Kip played bass on that record, and then oh. Alice came to me afterwards and said, hey, would you mind if I asked Kip to go out on tour? And I said, well, listen, Kip's my right. friend, but I, I, I'm not his manager or anything, so you have my, my blessing, even though it certainly you don't, you don't need it. If you, if you want to take Kip out, take him. Yeah. I'm sure he'd love it. And so that was, that was how that happened. Fascinating. I'm pretty, now that you mentioned that, I think Kip and I even talked about that when he was on. I had forgotten about that. That's very cool. Um, one more of these kind of reclamation projects The Storm. Here's a bunch of guys from Journey. Close, I can feel you breathe. 
I don't know if they are seeing bad English and they see, well, I want a piece of that. You know, I'll start my own little super group over here. Asia's done well. Bad English has done well. Is that kind of the thinking behind the storm? I don't think so. Or at least it, it wasn't It wasn't that way, uh, presented that way to me. This is another Herbie Herberts. Oh, okay. Uh, Herbie w- was, was managing them, and, and, and I forget exactly what the sequence of events was, but the final piece of the puzzle was, oh, oh I, I do remember, um, Bob Hallig- Halligan okay. had been doing a bunch of writing with Greg, and they found the singer Kevin Chalfont, and this was another one of those records where Bob was going to produce it. Mm-hmm. And then Herbie called us, and I was at Interscope then. And so I got on a plane, went up there, and it looked really good on paper, all the the elements from Journey. And Kevin Chalfont, who is a really, really, really good singer. Sure. And I just don't remember any the motivation being, you know, like a, a bad English kind of a thing. Okay. I think it was just we've got all these great players, and now we've yeah. got a a ton of material yeah. that Bob and uh, and Greg had already uh, filtered through. And and Bob was very very Im- important to that record, and he was a tremendous help to me. Okay. Um, because, you know, at Interscope, my responsibilities were, you know, uh, in addition to finding talent and making records and things like that, I had other responsibilities. So I was really very, very busy at that time. I bet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, those are two strong albums. And I just wondered what the story is. I'm imagining, like I said, whenever one of these supergroups does well, Asia, Bad English, whoever... All the right. other guys in there in that orbit are like, well, I want a piece of that too, you know. So that's kind of what I'm imagining yeah. the storm being. But maybe it wasn't. I don't know. Um, I want to talk about your early. We're gonna we're gonna end at the beginning because and before getting, I've had Amanda Blue on here as well from Spider in Shanghai, oh. and okay. um, I messaged her before we talked, and I said, you know, I'm going to be talking to Bo tomorrow, and she said, first of all, to tell you hi. She said, secondly, she pulled out uh, all of my tears recently off of the Shanghai album and thought it sounded pretty good. That's one of my favorite. That's my favorite song on that album. And I actually prefer the Shanghai album to the Spider records that came before.
how did you get involved in Shanghai? Because I think that's a really strong album. Okay. I was living in New York. I was unemployed. Mm-hmm. I was starving. <laughs> and I was living in an illegal converted warehouse. So the guy that I rented a room from had basically just taken some space in a warehouse, framed it out, and put up some sheetrock. And and that was it. Hmm. And this guy had a tremendous record collection. And so I was rummaging around through his record collection one day, and I stumbled across Spider, mm-hmm. which I had heard the previous year. And I loved it. I thought it was a great record. Sorry. And I made a simple comment. I said, man, I love this band. And he said, he said, wow, well, they're very close friends of mine and they need a keyboard player. And I was like, what? Are you serious? He said, yeah. And I said, do you think you could arrange a meet? And he said, sure. He walked over, picked up the phone, called him and Holly Knight had just quit Mm -hmm. Spider. Mm -hmm. And so the entire band is sitting around. They just lost their keyboard player and their primary writer. Yeah. And, and as a matter of fact, I played them talk to me and that's how that, how that happened. So you had been carrying that song around for a while, just looking for the right home. Yeah. Oh. oh yeah. Wow. So that's, uh, that's how that's that happened. And they said, they set up an audition and I said, okay, you know, I can take all the high vocals. Mm-hmm. I play guitar and I play keyboards. So I'm the utility guy and I can pretty much fill in whatever you need. And they gave me the gig. That is great. It didn't last very long though, right? Oh, not, no, not, not very long at all. Well, we finished that record and I was, you know, you had to, it was probably about 90 days after you uh, delivered a record for them to get it set up and to get, you know, the mm-hmm. thing manufactured and distributed and what have you. During that 90-day period was when Sandy Stewart happened and mm-hmm. subsequently Rat. So I uh. was waiting for my own rock star record to come out, and <laughs> I was inadvertently becoming a producer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. All, all at the same time. That is crazy. What about Airborne? Yeah. Because that – I. I really like that album too. And that one I didn't know either. And I loved it. It's on YouTube. Thankfully it's not on Spotify, unfortunately, but it's on YouTube. And it sounds to me like a band heavily influenced by Boston and just trying to like be their own version of Boston, which is fine by me, you know? Yeah. It was Boston and sticks. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. But that was, that was all Keith Olsen. Yeah. Oh, the great Keith Olson. The great Keith Olson. Yeah. And that was another one that, that it wasn't a band. So oh. I can give you some backstory on that if you're interested. Please. Yeah, I am. Okay. So I'm going to college in Colorado and I'm working at a studio that's a jingle studio called Applewood. Mm-hmm. And they just ran nine to five like a regular business and they recorded commercials for car companies. They recorded polka bands, church choirs, mm-hmm. all the, you know, real boring stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I was, and I started working there as a janitor. Oh. 
So I was oh. cleaning the toilets and what have you. And then, you know, I was hanging around and because I, I loved the whole recording process. And gradually I worked my way up to a senior engineer. Hmm. And I conned the owner into letting me record my band free. And I said, went to him and I said, look, you close down at five or six o'clock every day and the place sits empty. And I could get my engineering chops a lot better, a lot faster and make you more money if I had some time to just experiment because mm -hmm. When, when we're working, I mean, you're setting up and tearing down, setting up and tearing down, and there is like no time for anything. You just plug it in and go. Yeah. And so anyway, I convinced him to let me record after hours. And so – and this is where Kip and his two brothers uh, became really instrumental. Pardon the pun. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so at like you know 8 or 9 o'clock at night – me and a handful of my friends would get a couple of bottles of wine and we'd go in the studio and start writing and start making noise. Mm. And over the course of time, we wound up with some pretty good stuff. Yeah. Now, and mind you, this is after having made some of the worst sounding recordings ever <laughs> known to mankind. <laughs> <laughs> but we we really were experimenting and uh -huh. and I was trying to you know figure out my style I guess mm -hmm. so at the end of I don't know a year of this wound up with I don't know six or eight pretty decent songs mm -hmm. and the only person that I knew in the music business was was Keith Olson because I had met him when he was uh, a recording engineer at Sound City. Mm -hmm. And so I sent it to him. And he, he at, at this point, he was now the Keith Olsen. You know, he'd done yeah. Foreigner, he'd done Pat Benatar, Rick Springfield. I mean, he was like a big deal. Mm -hmm. And he was managed by Irving Azoff mm -hmm. of the Eagles and REO and mm -hmm. everybody else. And so Keith took my demos and played them for Irving. And Irving said, wow, who is this? And he said, oh, this is my, my dipshit friend from, uh, that I met in Texas, and he's working at a little studio and some stuff that he put together. And so Irving said, get him out here right now. So Keith called me and he said, hey, would you get on a plane and come and uh, Irving would like to meet with you. And I was like, really? Okay, sure. And so I got on a plane and met Irving and Bob Buziak and all the folks at Frontline. Mm -hmm. And um, Irving said, listen, I have uh, taken the liberty of setting up a couple of meetings with some labels with you. Are, are you good? We can do it tomorrow. And I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> so long story short, and, and this is absolutely every breath the truth. Mm -hmm. Irving set up six meetings and Keith took me around, and we met with the with six presidents of six labels. Mm -hmm. And I had six offers that day. Oh, 
Wow. I mean, well, actually not me. Irving had six offers. Yeah. Because yeah. Keith was going to produce, Irving was going to manage, and everybody went, well, shoot. That's that's the ticket right there. Yeah. You got all the major players. Yeah. And that's how that happened. And a couple of the songs that made it to the uh, to the Airborne record were the songs that I had demoed in my uh, experimental phase. If you yeah. Will. Was there a single off that album? Did it do very well? I don't remember. <clears throat> Life in the City was the first single. That's too bad. Um, I I really like No Exception to the Rule on that album. Uh, That long kind of coda on there. That's probably you, right? Playing most of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. I love that song. Well, and the backstory there is we went to London, Keith and me, and Keith called uh, Paul Buckmaster, who wrote all those beautiful Mm -hmm. scores for Elton John. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, and Paul and Paul and I sat up for a night and wrote the score, and then we went into air. And he got you know his pick of the litter from the London Philharmonic to come in and and uh, play the orchestration. Wow! Wow! That's it great. Was a tremendous learning experience for me. I bet it was. I bet it was. I have a really odd question. What do <laughs> you wear to all of those meetings? And did you when you flew out to L.A. Did someone take you shopping to buy either just the right suit or just the right leather pants or just the right <laughs> hairspray or what? How, or did you pack all of that from Colorado or did you just go as a regular guy? What do you wear in that moment? Well, okay. I wore what, what to me at the time was my most expensive stuff, which turned out to be black slacks and a shirt. Okay. That okay. was it. Okay. 
I didn't know if you had to like dress up nice and there's a pretty woman moment of you like shopping on Rodeo Drive with Irving Azoff. Oh, no. Okay. I'm just wondering. No, it was no, nothing like that at all. I just, okay. I tried to, to dress respectfully. And again, right. you know, I'd never met a president of a record company or I'd never even, you know, been in a record company building before. Right. So I didn't, I didn't know. So yeah. I just thought I would be respectful. You nailed it. Okay. <laughs> Last question. What do you do today, sure. Bo? What do you, how do you, I hope this isn't too insensitive. We talk about the business side of things on here. First of all, you're a co-founder of Interscope Records and you produce some of the biggest albums of an era. I'm guessing you're good financially for a long time. Do you still, are you still in this business? Are you still playing the game? What do you do? Oh, well, uh, in 2006, at my wife's insistence, uh, I put up a website, Bow Hill Productions. Uh-huh. And it took me a year to do it because I I don't know what the hell I'm doing, and I had right. I had some some help, but to get the graphics together and to get all of the accurate record counts and things like that, it took a long time, mm-hmm. and so then I just floated it out there, and because of my previous reputation, if somebody would type in Bo Hilt, then my website would come up, and there was a you know a contact page. And so I was getting contact from, from bands around the world mm-hmm. that I've never even spoken to. And they said, Hey, we need some help. Can you help us get this mixed and blah, 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 blah. And I was just mm-hmm. like, Oh, okay, sure. Mm-hmm. And then we figured out, you know, an, an easy way for people to pay for the services. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and then that was it. Okay. And so since 2006, uh, I sit in my studio and and I do projects that I want to do, and mm-hmm. I don't do projects if I don't want to do them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm the luckiest guy in the world, and yeah. you know I think I can safely say that we're we're pretty comfortable. Good. And uh, I'm not I'm going to be able to give up my. Uh, uh, the afternoon shift at Home Depot here pretty soon. <laughs> oh, I would love to go buy a hammer and be greeted by Bo Hill. That sounds wonderful to me. <laughs> I would love that. Uh, well, good, no, it's, Bo. It's a, it's a good life. Good. You're a legend, obviously. I love so much of what you've put out in the world, and I'm really grateful for it. Thank you for talking with me. It's really meant a lot. It's been my pleasure, and and I hope you stay in touch. Thank you, Bo. There you have it, Bo Hill. I love that. And isn't he very different? His personality seems so kind of reserved and mature compared to the people that he was working with and producing. I hope that's not a too critical of a generalization, but you just don't think of the guy, the mastermind behind that sound and that those bands as being the guy who's his you know, normal and regular and sober, I guess, as Bo Hill. Anyway, it's so much fun. I wanted to close it out. We t- he talked about it here near the end. Uh, there's that song by his early band Airborne called No Exception to the Rule, the one that he was talking about where he got to include the strings and everything. That's this song. And I just thought it was great. And let's close it out with something you guys don't know as well. It's on YouTube if you want to hear that whole Airborne album. It's a lot of fun. Anyway, I'm so glad we did this. Now, next week's guest 
we're continuing in this vein of kind of like 80s hard rock and metal. Well, not even just 80s, 70s and 80s. So next week's guest is a prominent music writer, and his primary focus is 80s rock and metal and 70s rock and metal. So it's really interesting to talk to him and get his sort of behind-the-scenes perspective on a lot of these bands. He's written books about a lot of these bands. Anyway, another fantastic uh, conversation. That's what's coming up next week. And again, hopefully, I really loved the book club episode that we put out this weekend with Bill Kopp talking about 415 Records. Hopefully, if all goes well, this weekend will be my bonus the bonus episode, which is my conversation with label honcho Howie Klein. So there's a lot of good stuff coming up right now, okay? Huge thanks, as always, to my right-hand man, Yan the Man, for everything. Thank you, buddy. Guys, you guys know by now you can like our page on Facebook, our page on Facebook. Anyway, you can give us a like on there. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. By the way, I'm going to be giving away a lot of books and CDs lately, and in order to be in the running to win those, you have to be a Patreon supporter. The link to how you do that is in the description of this show. Just go in there and either give us two bucks a month or five bucks a month, and it puts you in the running, okay? The five dollars, I tell you who I'm interviewing, and there's been a lot of big announcements lately, and if you want to submit questions that might get included in the interview that's what that gets you all right thanks everybody we love you